As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Welcome to the Rocket Ship Podcast. I'm Michael Saka. I'm Joelle Steiniger. And I'm Matt Goldman. And we're having 20-minute talks with entrepreneurs teaching you how to launch your product into revenue. Check out our book at howtobuildarocketship.com to reserve your launch discount and to download a free chapter. Today we talked with Jason Cohen, founder and CTO of WP Engine. You'll learn why you shouldn't be afraid to make ambitious changes to your strategy or pricing, and what those enhancements may look like. You'll also learn a bit about the differences between raising money to grow your company and self-funding all the way. Michael couldn't make it today, so you'll have to deal with a full episode of Just Joel and Me. Welcome to the Rocketship Podcast. We're here with Jason Cohen, founder of WP Engine. 
And uh, Jason, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Why don't you take us back and tell us a little bit how you got started with WP Engine and uh, maybe even what you were working on before that? Well, I have a long history, so probably can't get into all the stuff. Uh, WP Engine is my fourth startup. I've done um, bootstrap startups. I've raised money. Um, and uh, as a co-founder, as a single founder, um, in hardware and in software, uh, two of the of the companies have sold. All the companies made more than a million annual revenue um, while I was running them. Um, and uh, running W, well, I'm the CTO and founder of WP Engine today. We have um, um, about 140 employees and, and growing fast. And so this is one of those um, raise money and, gr- and and grow fast sort of uh, companies. And so um, I've done a lot of different things. Um, but uh, even though I'm currently in a in a in a company in which we decide to raise money and so forth. I'm also um, extremely partial to bootstrap companies as well. I think they don't get a fair shake in the world, and especially in the sort of online tech world, where if you're not valued at a billion dollars, regardless of revenue, then you're nothing. And I don't like that sort of attitude. And so, although um, there's nothing wrong with that, also I, I feel like the other side maybe doesn't get a fair shake. Or, or any respect, and and uh, but I do, and I've built those companies too, and I love them equally. So, um, yeah, I, I just like like talking about all kinds of companies. So, tell us a little bit about the early days, more like the the time when you realized that it was time to transition towards looking for funding. What what indicators did you have that you knew you should start pursuing a different a different path with WP Engine? Yeah, WP Engine was bootstrapped for eighteen months. And we got profitable twice in that period of time. And so it was clear that it was a profitable business model. And it was clear that we could continue bootstrapping and, and build that up. Um, but in a funny way, it's because um, it works so well bootstrapped it, that it's, it's actually a good question to ask, should you raise money? Because clearly the answer is you don't have to. And anytime you're making a big decision or looking at a deal or looking to sell the company or raise money or anything that's sort of a, a large deal that requires negotiation, the best position to be in is that you don't need it, that you really are okay walking away um, without it. Because then, of course, you can get the best possible deal and you can still walk away if you don't want it. But that way, at least you, you, um, you explore an option that can be a good option. Um, so in our case... It was, you know, it's it's hard to get traction at a company. It's hard to find customers. It's hard to keep them. Um, it, it's hard to grow the rate at which you acquire customers. And so, when you find a company in which, um, not it's not that it's easy, but that it's it's it sure is a heck of a lot easier than it it should be. And that's an indication that you have a really good fit. Um, and then you couple that with a, with a sort of obviously large market, and you say, okay, that's the kind of company which could raise money. So the question is, do you want to? Um, and at this point in my life, I'd had a kid. I actually was a stay-at-home dad for a year um, before starting WP Engine. And, um, and so with a family and, um, and having had some success in bootstrap startups before, um, it was just a, a, a personal decision for me to say, hey, I think this one um, um, could be really big and really impactful. And not just in changing the world in sort of the sense that making everyone in America put their nose in my wet, in my mobile app or some kind of egotistical change the world, but rather, um, you know, we could create a lot of good jobs. We could um, actually do something good for the world and, and consumers. And we could, this is a company that could generate a lot of wealth for a lot of people. And that's interesting. Um, and then, so, so, so just kind of where I was and, and what I wanted to achieve 
and the kind of project I wanted to work on, it made sense for me. And again, because we already had success as a bootstrap company, we could do that on good terms um, in terms of giving up ownership, giving up control, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so it really all made sense for us. But obviously, those are those are all very personal calls, whether you raise money or not, what kind of company you want to build and, and what path to pick is, is a personal choice. So something that I'm curious about, you see a lot of people on the bootstrap side really looking down on the funded side and vice versa. And it seems like nobody really notices the the area in between, which I think exists. Did you notice a big, um, a big impact on your lifestyle when you took the funding or were no. you able to still maintain your family life, vacations, et cetera? We weren't doing vacation. You don't get vacations when you bootstrap. <laughs> I don't know where you got that idea. No, no, it didn't change. It doesn't change the lifestyle. I mean, either way you have a ton of work to go do. It's just a different sort of goal and a different sort of work that you're trying to do. In a bootstrap case, you're trying to be profitable because you have to be. And so um, the company is, is, needs to be designed to be profitable. And of course, you, you want to grow, but you can grow only as fast as possible while still being profitable. Also, a lot of bootstrappers have other constraints they put on themselves on purpose. So for example, you have a lot of folks who say, I never want to have to manage an employee. That sounds horrible. So um, you know, then the question is, how, how big and profitable can I be without um, adding a person? So what does that mean in terms of the type of product that matches that sort of choice? Um, the kind of customer service that may or may not need to exist, the way the business model may work, and so on. Everything you know is around that. So these goals um, um, are, are are not right or wrong. Um, what is wrong is when you have one goal or one thing would would make you happy, but instead you do behaviors or do actions that are along a different goal. Or if you don't decide the goal, and so you sort of do a little bit of everything and therefore nothing particularly well. Those are wrong choices, right? But, but picking which path you want, there's not a wrong choice. And I agree, people look down on it. But don't people do that about all things they believe? Um, you know, whichever side of the aisle you vote for, you look down on the other side and religion. And I mean, you can go on and on about things that people feel strongly about that have to do with life and, and value are often different. Yeah. So something that, that I really enjoyed was being at MicroConf last year. You gave a talk all about pricing. I'm forgetting the the tagline of it. Do you recall? We can link to the, the video, but it was about building a, um, bootstrap company. Yeah. yeah building a, a bootstrap company and using, uh, annual, annual signups with a discount and cutting out your trial and a few other aspects that set you up to really have unlimited marketing budget where you could grow at a much faster rate. Could you talk a little bit about the highlights of that? Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> There's a couple of things together in there. Um, so again, if you're bootstrapping and so you're solving for cash flow, um, it's easy to think that you're solving just for profit, and you are. But you're you're really solving for cash flow, um, meaning if you had less profit overall, but you had a lot more money um, to spend up front and to to invest in the company, to buy marketing. Um, to make mistakes in those things and still survive, that's very valuable. And so $40,000 that you make over a year is not as valuable as twenty dollars or $30,000 that you get in one month that you can then go deploy in any way that is useful to the business. And so that's all the argument for um, annual prepays for recurring revenue companies. So in other words, if you normally charge 100 bucks a month, maybe for $1,000, um, so therefore for a discount, um, you could you could get uh, that service for a year. 
So by giving the customer a little discount but getting all that cash up front is huge for a bootstrap company um, because you can immediately deploy that money to uh, you know, marketing for new customers, for design for the homepage, um, even just paying your own salary and, and sort of making that work and staying ahead. In a funny way, it's almost like a pyramid scheme. In other words, I get all the money now, of course it has to last me. Then again, I can use that money to get even more customers. And so in that sense, I can use the money today to get more money today uh, and so on. Um, but that, of course, does work because in the end it is recurring revenue. And uh, that small discount for the time shift is worth it. So that's the annual discount. And what you were talking about, about an, a so-called infinite marketing budget, comes about when you can get a large percentage of your customers, like a quarter of them, to choose the annual route. So if you think about the math, if a quarter of your signups choose an annual route, even with a discount, that still means for that quarter, you get, say, nine or ten months worth of, of, of revenue to uh, this month. Um, and even if that's just a quarter of the signups, that still means you'd make three more, uh, three times the cash this month than you would otherwise. And that's an absolute huge shift for a lot of people. That means they can quit their day job and focus completely on the business, which is often one of the turning points of the business to be able to have that, that focus um, and, and so on. So, so it, doesn't, it doesn't even take that many people to elect uh, that in order to make a huge difference. And then if your payback period in terms of marketing spend, so that is if I, if I spend $100 to acquire a customer that gives me 25 bucks a month, then I get I, I pay back that marketing expense in four months, and after that is is when I really start making money. So you, you say four months is the payback period. Well, for an annual customer, as long as the payback period is less than say uh, six months, nine months, something in that area, then you literally make the cash back this month. You make more cash than you spent in terms of cash flow, um, and in that sense, in a cash sense, you're still positive on that customer right now, even though you, just, you have to spend money to get them. And that is another powerful thing, and that's, that's what you were alluding to when you said infinite um, marketing budget. Because if it's true, <clears throat> from a cash basis, you can, um, you, know, you, you can do that as much as you want. And of course, there's other constraints around how many customers can you get, and can you get reasonably efficiently, and can you support? I mean, there's other constraints around getting customers. But, the, but what annual, uh, if, you're, if you're good at getting a reasonable number of people to pick annual prepays is, um, from a cash flow basis, your marketing budget isn't constrained. And that's pretty amazing, because obviously, getting customers, probably the hardest thing for any small customer uh, company, period. Um, being able to pay to get them is one of the ways to get around that, of course. But then you run into the cash flow problem, the catch-22, well, I can't I don't have the money to pay to get to to get customers until I have customers that fund it. An annual prepaid like gets you around that catch twenty two, um, and so it's really really worth trying to make that um, happen. Um, so another trick, for example, to get people to do that is when you work with other folks like say affiliates or review sites or bloggers, where um, you're going to give them say a coupon for their readers as part of the part of the incentive. That coupon, for example, maybe only works on annual plans. And that way, yeah, you'll give a discount. Yeah, you'll do an incentive, but only if it comes in the form of an annual prepay that gets you the rest of those benefits. And, and suddenly, um, you know, you can imagine some pretty um, steep discounts and coupons there um, because it's worth it. Um, there's always some value in just having customers. In other words, two, co two companies that are absolutely identical and one has 1,000 customers and one has 100, one with 1,000 customers has a lot of built-in advantages. There's a lot more um, customer feedback you're going to get. Um, you'll have a lot more insight, therefore, into the into the base. 
um, what, to whatever extent word of mouth is happening. And of course, if it's viral, then good for you, but most companies aren't. But there is word of mouth. Many companies have that. And of course, the more com- customers you have, period, the more word of mouth can work. And those word of mouth uh, customers you get um, typically are very low cost to acquire and, and uh, often stay a long time because it came in in a happy way. And so again, this all um, reinforces this argument that doing annual prepay to fix the cash flow problem, but then being more generous on coupons and affiliates and stuff to make it happen, even if on those particular customers you're not terribly profitable, is worth it just because having a mass of customers is in fact valuable. Hey guys, hope you're enjoying the episode. I wanted to take a minute to thank CodeShip for sponsoring the show. CodeShip makes continuous deployment simple and easy, and we've actually been ecstatic customers of theirs for a very long time. If you'd like to see how we use CodeShip to deploy our product HookFeed, go watch the short video we put together at howtobuildarocketship.com slash CodeShip. Enjoy the rest of the episode. And that's really powerful that looking at for a bootstrapper with just a handful of customers paying annually uh, each month, they can really quit their job sooner. So for a new product, have you what have you seen work or increase that rate of annual signups for WP Engine that people with a new product that people may not necessarily trust? What can they do to increase trust and push people towards the annual plan? Um, well, the obvious one is allowing people to cancel the annual plan. Um, and the kind of typical way to allow that is to say, if you cancel the annual, we'll refund you in a prorated sense, but it's as if you were paying monthly the whole time. And what that does is it undoes the, um, the, uh, uh, the discount that you would have otherwise gotten. Um, and so sure you, you prorate and sure you refund and that sucks, but you actually made more cash um, on balance um, because you, because they lose that, that discount rate when they do that. That's a typical way where the customer feels like they're not getting screwed um, and, uh, and therefore they can take that risk knowing they can undo. And, if, and the other thing is to just offer a money-back guarantee at first. There has to be some time limit, obviously. But, um, you know, the, the fact is if you're going to have good customer service, you're going to do that anyway. Like if someone had a really bad experience says, this sucks from top to bottom and I know I'm 45 days old and paid you twice, but you should refund my money because I had a terrible experience. Like if you care at all about customer service, you're going to just do that. It'll placate the customer. It's not that much money anyway. Um, it's not worth keeping the, the 40 bucks or whatever and then having someone really, really pissed off. Um, and in fact, I, I, a lot of times in my career, um, I've done that with someone and they've returned. They've come back uh, at a later date when either our product was better or they were in a different position um, in which our product was a fit, or they even referred people. I remember um, early at SmartBear, my last company, um, there was a guy from, from, I won't name the company, uh, but a, a very large public company, and he bought one thing on his credit card and wanted a refund, and I did. And later on, he, he, he must have referred a dozen people to us over the years, um, just because he was like, yeah, look, uh, just try it. Like, they're fair people that, you know, if it didn't work, it didn't work for me, but um, they're fair people, so give them a shake. So um, you know, it, pay, it doesn't pay to keep the forty bucks and then lose out on on, on that. Um, so you're gonna you're gonna do that anyway if you have a reasonable customer service. So you might as well get the social credit for it and say right there, sixty day money back guarantee or something like that, um, and get the credit for for what you're gonna do anyway. And that also, of course. Um, makes it easier for someone to sign up knowing they can undo. And you say, how do you build trust immediately? You don't. 
the definition of trust is something that is earned over time. You can get benefit of the doubt immediately. You can get, you know, uh, and, and you can earn benefit of the doubt by things like saying there's no lock-in, there's no contract. You can always escape from this. Um, and so give me the benefit of the doubt because if it's wrong, you can leave. That's good. That isn't trust either. Right? Trust is, is what happens when, you're, when you are your word over and over again, um, whether that's in what the product will do for someone or how customer service will handle issues and so on. And so that's, that's your challenge um, is to earn trust over time but remove barriers and, and earn benefit of the doubt immediately. Right. Um, so you know better than anyone. I mean, you've run four companies. There's no silver bullet to hitting that you know, product market fit, hitting your growth stride and all that. Um, pricing is certainly one of the things people struggle with the most. Um, but what do you really see, um, both from the bootstrapper side, but also even now on the funded side, um, what do you see as struggles, uh, that kind of tend to pop up time and time again? Well, everyone has the same problems. The, probably the hardest thing is to find customers to buy and stay. And, um, most people can code if they do a startup, um, and the design, I don't think, matters as much as a lot of people think. It can help, but uh, the number of, of, of very successful companies with horrific design, they go on and on. So that doesn't seem like that's actually the big barrier. Um, so it's finding customers and and the business model, part of which is price, and you know, part of which is how is it that you're earning money. I mean, there's a lot of things that go into um, the mechanics of your accounting. Um, but obviously, there are companies that it doesn't matter how big they get. They still don't work. Um, and so there's that, but I, really it's distribution, meaning getting in front of customers that actually want what you have and are willing to pay for it is, is for sure the hardest thing. Would you say that kind of your secret sauce in building one successful company after another is keeping your focus on kind of acquisition and retention and not as much on uh, the things that tend to distract other people? No, I think I'm susceptible to that too. I think... Um, I think a good mindset for it is um, if you are a software developer, you know that with a big project stretched out in front of you with lots of tasks to do, you know that there are some tasks where there's a lot of ambiguity or at least high risk of the timeline or whether you can even solve it. And the correct thing to do in software is to tackle those first because otherwise the whole timeline is in jeopardy you know, until you've tackled them anyway, which you're going to have to do eventually to solve the project. And so you sort of bite into those and try to understand them better and, and scope them and so on. And so the same thing needs to be done with the startup. The trouble is you don't want to do the stuff that's hard. It's, it's um, unlike software where it could be fun to tackle the really hard, strange, ambiguous problem. In startups, the, the, the strange, ambiguous problem are all those human beings that are supposed to give you money if only you could get in front of them and then tell them what they want to hear, and then at a price that they want to buy, and get them to go through all those mechanics of actually signing up, and then also staying if it's a recurring revenue business. Um, that's the hard part, but it's also not nearly as fun, especially for engineers. It's, it's pretty rough, and you have to deal with a lot of rejection and people saying you suck, more or less. I mean, even just someone hitting the homepage and leaving is, is kind of a, a little quiet, nah, not for me. And it's hard to sort of deal with that. And so... Um, so people don't. They're like, well, I'll add another feature. Um, but for most companies that have a have some product at all and a website, um, and you ask, 
what is the what is the main problem with this company or what is the thing preventing this company from being successful or what is or at least what is the thing that's preventing this company this person from quitting their day job or what is the thing preventing this company from making a million dollars a year it's very rarely one more feature like that's that's almost never the answer or if only it was designed prettier is probably not it it's probably getting people it's probably finding enough people who are correct to sign up for it and them signing up and them staying is probably it and so it's just that that's hard to deal with and opening up TextMate and banging out another feature or opening up um, Photoshop and playing with the, the uh, UX is easier. And so we do it um, instead of tackling the hard, sort of obvious problem that, that, that faces the company. Yeah. So one, one final question that I have is you've talked about doing a money-back guarantee instead of a trial before. And what I've always wondered is, I understand that that would work good for a company where people know what they're going to get after they sign up. With with hosting, they have a pretty good idea. They're going to be able to upload their files, deploy it, send it, or point a domain at it. They know what they're going to get. But with some other products, if the end value isn't clear, do you, have you seen anything that would increase the... The viability of doing no trial in favor of a money back guarantee. Well, you can't take any rule like that and just blindly apply it to all startups. It's it's for sure it's idiosyncratic. There may be markets where people are simply used to a free trial, and so if you didn't have one, you just wouldn't be an option. Um, uh, and and maybe the more consumer you get, the more that's true. Um, also, if your trial conversion rate is super high, then there you go. But if your conversion rate isn't super high, then maybe you're not benefiting a lot from having a trial anyway, um, and maybe you should skip it. I think it's, it's also easy to say, well, that works for you, but not for me. But I, I tend to find that that argument um, is never really a truism in business. It's, it's, it's always easy for someone to say, well, your business is different because it's hosting. Mine's different because it's a CRM, so people don't know what they're getting. But I think that's crap. I mean, people buy their homes without sleeping in them. Um, that's pretty huge um, without a trial. Yeah. So, you know, I don't think that's true. I think um, um, people said you couldn't do Zappos because you have to try them on first, but of course they figured out how to do that. And yes, you did buy them first, but you had a money-back guarantee. And so actually you can do that in shoes, even though everyone says you have to try shoes on first. No, you don't. And Warby Parker actually is a free trial with the glasses, but they charge you if you don't send them back. Um, I mean, so that that sounds fine, but whenever I hear the it wouldn't work for me because it's usually not really an argument. You just don't want to try it. Um, and that's not to say that's not, that, that, that you're not right sometimes. I agree. There's definitely products and, and markets where a free trial is better and charging up front would not be better. I, of course, I agree. But I don't, I don't agree with um, coming to that conclusion on the basis of somehow um, my product's magically different and, uh, than yours. And so it doesn't work that way. Um, I think um, – I mean, I don't agree. People understand what they're getting with us. They don't know whether their site will be faster or not. They don't know what it's going to look like. They don't know how to upload their files necessarily. Um, so I could easily make the counter argument. Not that I want to. It's really just to make the point that I don't think that's a useful argument. Um, I think I think you need to look at what do customers expect. Um, you could try it, of course, for a week and just to see what would happen. A lot of things you think are impossible, um, you can try for a week to see whether it is, in fact, impossible. I've... I've told startups before to who had a $300 per year pricing. I said, just try for a week making that per month and see what happens. And the, the sign-up rate did not change at all. Um, same thing with doubling price. But that's not to say that that would always be the case, right? It could go to zero. But the point is, making those kinds of drastic, big attempts 
if you're wrong, it's only a week, who cares? But if you're right that that kind of price change or money back guarantee or whatever kind of thing, if in fact that does work, and for whatever reason, who knows what the theory is around why the behavior of the customers are, is the way it is, but if in fact it's not what you think, it's, it could be so, cha- it could be so um, massive to the business and business model, you sort of can't afford not to try and not ask the question, suspend your disbelief and all your um, sort of uh, um, justif- internal justifications of why it couldn't possibly be and just uh, try things. Now, on a very small basis, swapping one headline for another, you know, sure, whatever. But on these big things that could double revenue or, or double profits, um, how, you know, why in the world would you start arguing why it's impossible? And why wouldn't you say, hold on, how, why don't I ask the reverse question? How can I build a business where, of course, they would pay double? Of course, they would pay 10x. And so it's actually an exercise I think is really healthy regardless of what you do with the result, which is to say, what if I forced you to, to add a zero to all your prices today? You don't have a choice. You have to charge the price, those prices 10 times more than you're charging now for every tier. What would you have to do? How would the business have to change? What would service look like? What would the onboarding experience look like? What would the design of the, of the site look like? What would the About Us page say? What would the features have to be? Um, what would your service policies about things like um, giving money back and that sort of thing, how would those have to change? What kinds of post-sale sort of account management would you want to do to, to retain that? Um, and of course, you could afford to do it if the prices were that high. That's another factor. And you, you, know, you just ask all these um, open-ended questions around what would you have to do to justify that for, any, for anyone to do it. And then um, the result of this exercise is you say, well, then why don't you do a couple of those things regardless of the price, and then you're adding a ton more value, or at least perceived value. And by the way, maybe you should double or triple prices while you do those things, and maybe that will work because you just decided how to make that work. So I think, I think those are the more interesting and certainly more valuable exercises and questions asking not or not not trying to uh, justify why you couldn't possibly raise prices or such and such a bizarre is impossible but rather ask well hey how could i make it so that it would work so that prices could be much higher so the business model could be whatever is useful to you whether that's you know re- recurring where today it's not recurring or whether that's annual versus monthly or whether it's just much higher price whatever it is it's going to make the business more predictable and more valuable um why not work towards that as, as your challenge rather than um, you know, justifying why you can't charge money or you, you can't be expensive? Yeah. Yeah, that's incredibly helpful. Thank you. Yeah, it actually, it's kind of like backcasting, if you're familiar with that. You know, instead of just picking some price out there or some goal up ahead and put, putting your head down and working towards it, you actually work backwards and say, okay, what do I need to do to make the $10 plan worth $100. Um, so I love that. It definitely makes me think differently about our own product. Now, it also changes other things. Um, you can't just change price and then and then everything else stays the same. Right. You have a different kind of customer. But you're right. People who would order, ordinarily pay 10 bucks a month, a lot of them will pay $100. Um, then again, some people that saw 10 bucks a month and thought, oh, this is some crap, may actually pay $100. <laughs> and, um, but it's different sorts of folks. And so marketing to them is different. Talking to them is different. Selling to them is different. And their expectations around the product and the company and service is different. So it's not true that, you know, I'm being sort of flippant about changing prices, but that there's a reason why it's, you have to go through and ask what all would be different. 
because it is different. It wouldn't be the same company, um, not, not just in what you would have to do, but in who you're signing up. And so that's all true. But again, I sort of submit, again, as a small company, especially a bootstrap company, um, you know, the last thing you want to have to do as a bootstrap company is, is get 1,000 or 10,000 customers before you're really profitable because it's really hard. And almost no company ever gets that many customers ever. And so if you charge a small amount of money, you have no choice but to try to get thousands of customers. And that's hard. Not impossible and all that, but it's, it's very hard. And so you know, isn't it better to, to charge an average of $100 and have hundreds of customers and be able to quit your day job instead of charging $10 a month but having to get thousands? And uh, you know, I don't care who you are, getting thousands of customers is hard. It takes a long time to do, too. You'll be at it a long time to scrape your way up to 1,000 customers. Anyone that's done a company um, like you guys are right now know, man, every customer is, is hard. Um, and uh, you know, getting 2,000 kind of seems really, really infinitely far away. And it kind of is. Um, so all the more reason to charge more so that that doesn't have to be the goal or the short-term goal, that is. You've done the bootstrap thing. You're doing the funding thing now. Um, I, what do you wish you would have known maybe before you got into the funding side or um, maybe any words of caution or wisdom on that route? Well, we, we definitely did the right thing by doing it. And so on that side, it's fine. One thing, one thing we sort of hit pretty early on, like in the first six months after getting funded, is um, we, we didn't plan for success in every department. In other words, um, we started doing things like uh, increasing marketing spend and going to events and, and things like that, spending money in that side of things. And of course, those things take time to develop and start paying off. And really, nobody knows if and when they will, which marketing channels will work and you know, which events will be the key ones. Like Nobody knows, right? So you just start doing that. But what we didn't do is similarly increase spend in engineering, in support, and so on. And so what happened is, for a while, that seemed really smart. You know, we were trying different things to get to grow, and they weren't working yet, and we weren't wasting money. So that's good, except then suddenly it started working. And all of a sudden, our growth curve took a huge bend. We started taking off. But since we hadn't invested in all the other support mechanisms, like customer service and engineering, um, we weren't ready for that. And so we started delivering very bad customer service and having trouble with the servers and all that kind of thing um, because we hadn't done a similar investment in the other areas. So you can sort of, um, you can sort of summarize that as, as planning for success. That is, you, you, you should, the point of the money is to, is to be successful. And so um, it's wrong to then con continue to have that conservative mindset of only spending money when, uh, you know, when the problem arises, which is sort of the bootstrap mentality. And it has to be the bootstrap mentality. But rather, you have to look in the future and assume success so that if success comes, um, you're ready to take advantage of it fully. And so instead, we went through this really uh, tough period for maybe six, six months trying to hire and then train while we're underwater and all that kind of stuff. It's really hard. Um, and so, yes, that doing that burns money, but that's the whole point of the money is to, is to spend it against that, hedge against success. So... Um, that would have been wise for us to do. And then do you have any good resources on figuring out how much to raise if you are pursuing that? Pursuing that? Well, that's like asking what price should I charge. Um, well, I mean, uh, to, to help calculate based on... No. No. I mean, if Snapchat is, you know, 
if WhatsApp is $19 billion, then how do you value a company? Mm-hmm. If Instagram is only $1 billion, how do you value a company? If, um, you know, if, if a company with no revenue raises an A round at, at $8 million, company with real revenue um, and similar growth rate raises at $3 million, then how, do, how is it that you value a company? And so that, all that just tells you, not that it's impossible, but that there's not a generic answer like that. You can't take three numbers and multiply them and get your value. Yeah, I guess I guess I'm not asking so much about the value, but more so um, the the right amount to where you're setting yourself up for success um, if you don't hit the the goals that you need to 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 where the company could run without raising more funding. Worst case, that's not the goal. Yeah, so you're you're basically or go ahead. Yeah, the goal is not to raise an A round so that you can become profitable. The goal is to raise an A round so that you can hit milestones so that you can raise your B round. Like once you start into the institutional money, goal isn't profit. The goal is growth. Mm-hmm. The goal is to own the market. The goal is to um, become as much of a monopoly as you can um, within the law. That's the goal. And maximum shareholder value. And what would you say it's, towards... It's a fiduciary duty to do that. So profitability is the last thing you want. Because profitability indicates that you're out of ideas for how to grow or invest or de-risk the business. Because if you had ideas of how to do those things, that's what you should be doing with that money. So it means you're out of ideas um, for how to spend that money against the company. Um, and, until, of course, you're very, very large and reaping that. Although even today, you can see that in, say, um, you know, Amazon or Salesforce that is still um, you know, running at razor-thin cash flows because they keep reinvesting into the business to grow it, and successfully so. so no, that's not the goal, and, and there's no institutional investor who wants that to be the goal. Now, on the other hand, like you don't want a completely broken business model, so of course there's going to be, and this depends on the business, what kinds of metrics you're looking at, but there's going to be metrics and ratios and things that are the goal, um, and some of them might be financial, and I do like a business, and we did this at WP Engine, I do like a business that um, that tries to get cl- tries to close the gap on, on uh, profitability, that is, the goal isn't to become profitable, but you should be seeing some kinds of um, approaching profitability, or at least profitable when you ignore certain kinds of expenses that you're that you're intentionally overburning on, um, and seeing that the, that the rest of the expenses is getting more and more profitable. Like those kinds of things make a ton of sense because um, that's showing the business is coming together and the business model is working as expected. Um, but um, no, you don't raise you don't raise an A round um, with the goal of. Uh, with the outcome of that being profitability, not with an institute. You do that with angels, maybe who are unsophisticated, but not with uh, not with in, uh, with real investors. And so, what would you say towards um, taking a bootstrap company that's profitable, raising an angel round to slingshot it to the next level, but not pursuing institutional? Um. Well, then you just tell whatever story you want because you're just dealing with angel investors who. Have much, much. Um, first of all, almost all of them will lose their money because they're not they're not sophisticated about how they spend it, and that's that's sort of a well known phenomenon. So they're not going to be too sophisticated on that. And um, they're at that point, you're dealing with individuals who are controlling their own funds, and so that is their own money. In that case, all you have to do is just convince them of whatever it is you're trying to do. Um, if you want to stay independent forever, then I guess an interesting question is how will you pay them back ever? Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a good question. Um, assuming you can solve that question, um, it's whatever you want. I mean, that, it's just human beings dealing with each other, 
you know, ideally they're they're taken with your um, with your idea. If you're profitable and growing, then you've got all the proof you need that this is a real business, of course. Um, and so, and so the only question is, what do those angels personally want? See, it's easy to know what in- institutional investors want because they've already made the promise to their LPs. There's no choice. The model is set. Um, there's a contract, literally, with the LPs about how they'll spend the money and why. So there's there's no doubt about what what they're incentives are and what they want from you and why like it's literally written in stone and so it's very easy to understand how an institutional investor um, figures things out an angel is just the reverse it's just the person doing whatever the heck they want so you know presuming you can solve the question of how would they ever make their money back there you go although i don't know i I think i've seen some angel deals where there isn't isn't clear how they'll ever make their money back and they don't care right so even that maybe uh, doesn't matter it also depends on the angel so if you raise from um for me as an angel, that's one thing. But if you raise, you know, a lot of people raise from their dentist or they raise from their, uh, from, you know, the ex-VP of sales of a telco company in Dallas who has just tons of money. And so why is that person investing and what do they expect and do they understand what investment is and what the product even is? Um, who knows, right? And so what are the rules? There, there aren't any. Um, it's, <laughs> right? Like, um, it really depends on the person. Yeah, but I would argue. Look, why would you do that? Like, you're a boots. If you're a bootstrap company and you're profitable and growing, why in the world would you want to involve anybody, especially dumb money who doesn't, who won't ask good questions and won't help you build the company? And all it'll be is a pain in the butt. Like, why? I mean, okay, sure, you can get a little bit of extra money, but um, really, that's worth your life. You're, you know, working with people that aren't helpful or um, being being um, indebted to someone, even if they don't technically have control, it doesn't matter. Um, they still will email you and, and they're still a thing. They're still a force. Um, why do that when you have a, when you have control, you have your bootstrap profitable company, just so you can grow a little faster. What do you care? Why do you, why would in the world would you give up your freedom for that? So to me, like I actually kind of, I, I don't understand the motivation there exactly. Um, uh, conversely, if you said, look, everything's great. For that and so there's this there's this one angel we think that person will be incredibly helpful they have a great reputation they're going to put in a half a mil or a mil or some some kind of reasonable amount of money that will make a difference and it's just one person and we actually do think they'll help and blah 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 i can kind of see that you're sort of bringing on a, a financial partner and and you feel like that will help de-risk the company a bit and, and help you know achieve something and, and that sounds like a fun adventure i that i can get more uh i can understand that uh, but again, like this is why it's so personal and why it's hard to give general advice because it's about what, well, why are you raising this money? Maybe you don't want to run it forever and this is part of a step to that. Maybe you're tired of running um, a slow growth one. You're like, I don't even care if I give up power, uh, some power and, and have some and have a board and all this. I don't even care because I want to swing for the fences and screw it. Um, that's fine, but then I might suggest institutional money because they'll help you be successful there a lot more than, uh, than angels will. Um, but again, like again, that's why you have to work. Like you said, you have to backcast and say, "What is it that you want? What is the point here? What is your? What's going to make you happy or fulfilled? What's the journey that you would like to attempt here? Does that match the company? And then, how can your actions, in terms of all these things, match that? Um, you know, to increase the the chance that you will be successful in that that particular path you want. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. I really appreciate that, Jason. Sure. Um, thank you so much for coming on. This has really been great. 
Uh, can you tell everyone where we can keep up with you online? Sure. I write at blog.asmartbear.com. And Smart Bear was the company I did before WP Engine. And my Twitter handle is the same, at asmartbear. Fantastic. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Rocket Ship Podcast. If you haven't yet, pop open iTunes and subscribe to be notified of future episodes. We have some really great ones lined up. And while you're there, leave us a review. We really appreciate each and every one of them.